It was August 21st, 1999. It was a Saturday. It had been the culmination of a lot of planning, preparation to that moment. And yet, for all of the planning, for all of the preparation, uh, we found ourselves in that day as stressed as we had ever been. The day was our wedding day. And I remember in particular, uh, I had rented a car, and I was driving it, and I had picked up some things, and I was heading to the building. And I may have taken a, a slightly liberal interpretation of the speed limit. And in doing so, it wasn't too much longer when I found the red and blue flashing in my rearview mirror of all days. So I pull over. Get my license and my registration, insurance, everything out. Officer comes up. He says, good afternoon. You were speeding, and that's why I pulled you over. And I said, yes, I realized I was speeding, and I apologize for that. Um, I'm not making an excuse here. I'm sure you hear lots of them. But I can tell you the truth, that today, honest to goodness, is my wedding day. And so I would please make this request, whatever you're about to do, do quickly. Well, he was gracious. He took checked my information. He saw the tuxes or whatever I was had in the back and realized my story checked out. And so he showed me mercy. And I went on to the church building as stressed as ever, uh, as my bride-to-be was as stressed as ever. And so I took on more of that stress. It just seemed like such a blur. We had spent... Months and weeks preparing, and and we had uh, our attendance and our wedding party and people coming from out of town and family members and all of the the people and the stress of that moment, it seemed to just bear down like I did not imagine it would on my wedding day. In fact, I told myself, I told Christy, there's going to be many things that could stress us out. Let's not stress out. (laughs) Which for planners is like, oh good, one more thing to worry about. But I can remember the moment when I married my wife. As we stood there in that building at 1144 South Emporia. And the music, the song began to be sung that she was going to walk in on. And as it, that music came up and everyone stood at the back of the room and there she stepped into my view. I remember that so clearly. It was a beautiful moment. I'm convinced it was a holy moment. Because since that time I've done a lot more weddings. Not in that position of the groomsman, clarify that. But as the guy standing behind him, and I get to watch, like oftentimes within 6 to 12 inches of closeness, his reaction as he sees her. And I will tell you and testify to it, that as God is my witness, that's a holy moment happening. I can't point you to book, chapter, and verse. I can't tell you what it is, but in that moment... What God intended for man, 
the holiness of that covenant is, is being realized. So I've watched groomsmen cry. I've watched them just almost slack-jawed. There was a commercial several years ago. It was a, for a place that sold tuxedos. And there was a great line in this particular commercial. The line was this. While everyone else is looking at her, she'll be looking at you. For some reason that stuck with me. Now why do I tell this weird story about my wedding day and other folks' wedding day? To remind you that what happens in marriage is a holy thing of God. But there's as much depth and richness as there is to that moment and that covenant and what beauty there is in it. There's even something deeper. There's something that God's trying to communicate to us. And that's what I want to focus on tonight. Our scripture is in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 25 through verse 31. And of particular, I want to tell you as we begin, that when we read these verses, it's usually for a sermon on marriage and marital roles and the responsibilities of husbands and wives. And those lessons are fine. I've preached those lessons myself. Nothing wrong with that. But what I want to tell you is I want us to focus more deeply on what we're trying, on the lesson that is trying to be conveyed to us through the holy covenant of marriage. Just in other words, is not a sermon on husbands and wives. Tonight's sermon is about the bride. Ephesians 5, starting verse 25, Paul writes these words. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father. And mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A lot of times when I preach on Ephesians 5.25 through 31 and following. What I'm usually talking about is husbands and wives. But when you pay attention here, Paul's very specific to say there's more to it. This is speaking of Christ and the church. And so tonight I want to look through the lens of what Paul says, the relationship of Christ and his church, as we consider the implications beyond just the household realm and go into the deeper world of the heavenly realm. 
The Bible begins and ends with a wedding. I love that. I think it's there for a purpose and to remind us that Jesus saw us in his church as his bride. We're going to talk about this bride. First, the bride is dearly, dearly loved by Jesus. The picture of Jesus and his bride, the church, makes more sense when you understand a bit about a Jewish wedding. Now, a Jewish wedding, certainly in Jesus' day, was a much more involved affair. I know you think you get stressed out for your half an hour ceremony or so, or whatever it was like on your wedding day. But in that day, the ceremony was spread over a multitude of days, and there was many parts to it. Uh, Some descriptions that I found that will help you. When a future bride had been chosen for a young man, either by his parents or more rarely by himself, there followed a period of one year called the betrothal. During this time, the couple still lived apart. After the period of betrothal was finished and all agreements, I'm sorry, and all agreements were at last reached and signed, the wedding could take place. Weddings typically extended over a period of five to seven days. Usually, the entire village gathered for such an occasion. At the beginning of the wedding feast, in the evening, the bridegroom, accompanied by his friends, went to fetch the bethroned, his bethroned, betrothed, excuse me, uh, new bethroned is not the right word, went to fetch his betrothed from her father's house. He would wear particularly splendid clothing and sometimes even a crown. The bride was carried in procession. She was beautifully dressed. And along the way, people sang wedding songs that were traditionally known and drawn largely from the song of songs found in the Bible. Who is this coming up from the wilderness like a column of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and incense made from all the spices of a merchant? Song of Songs, chapter 3, verse 6. And others. When the procession reached the bridegroom's house, his parents bestowed a traditional blessing drawn from scriptures and other sources. After the prayers, the evening was passed in games and dancing, and the bridegroom took part in all the festivities. But the bride withdrew her bridesmaids and her friends to another room assigned to them. The next day was the wedding feast. And once again, there was a general rejoicing and a sort of holiday in the village. There was a meal toward the end of the day at which the men and the women were served separately. This was a time for the giving of presents and etc. The bride, all dressed in white, was surrounded by her bridesmaids, usually ten in number. She sat under a canopy where traditional songs and blessings were sung and recited. Again, many from the Song of Songs. During this time in the evening, the groom arrived, and while the exact ritual words are not certain, there seems to have been a dialogue between the bride and the groom. Now that the couple was together, all the other men and women also came together, and it would seem that the synagogue or the other religious leaders imparted blessings to the new couple now together under the canopy. After these came the evening feast. Later on that first evening, the couple vanished, and the marriage was consummated, The celebration often went on for several more days. 
The couple did not go on a honeymoon, but remained together for the rest of the celebration, sharing in the merriment, the songs, and the dancing under the star-strewn sky. That was what they considered when they thought of a wedding. I can only imagine. Now, as beautiful as that is and interesting, what I really want to point is why all of that for just a, a simple union of two people? Or even when we jump into our modern idea of a wedding, why all of the festivities, why all of the planning, the preparation? It comes down to this. Because the groom dearly loves his bride. And when we celebrate that, we celebrate something with Christ in the church. He is our bridegroom. His love and his authority is unquestionable and also not fully fathomable. Colossians chapter 2, verse uh, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. Here's what John, if you want to think of a wedding ceremony, John would have been sort of the best man. Here's what he told his disciples. You yourselves bear me witness. This is John chapter 3, if you want to follow along. Verse 28. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. First John chapter 4, verse 19, he wrote, We love. Because he first loved us. I told you this morning about being in the teen class at the Emporia Avenue Church of Christ. And I can remember the day uh, that my future bride walked in. She didn't know, of course, the plans that I had. But I can remember the day. I can remember the moment when she walked down the aisle. And it reminds me. That the the occasion starts because of his dear love for us, his bride. Now, let's read these words from 1 Peter chapter 3. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's talking about husbands and wives again. But I want you to think about Christ and his church. And I've replaced Christ and church where husbands and wives are in the text. Hopefully this will help you. Understand more deeply his love for you. Likewise, First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, church, be subject to Christ, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, conduct of the church. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. 
likewise, Christ lives within the church in an understanding way, showing honor to the church as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with him of the grace of life, so that their prayers may not be hindered. Understanding the role of husbands and wives is made more clear to me by understanding the relationship of Christ to his beloved, the church. And she dearly loves him too. Number two, she is made holy by her husband. And I said that the, the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. But all in the middle there is this, this relationship, especially with God and his people Israel, where God over and over comes back to this covenant and he calls them to the kind of relationship that he wants and the kind of relationship that they do not give. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, the prophet says, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you have followed me in the wilderness in a land you have not sown. Later on in Hosea, that prophet was commanded to go and, and find an unfaithful wife for the strict purpose of calling Israel out and saying, I need you to understand who you have been to me, how unfaithful you have been despite my love, my deep love for you. This reminded them of a covenant in a way that they could understand. I can talk to you about covenant and relationship between us and God but when I say to you that this covenant is designed to be monogamous, that there are to be no other lovers, if you will, no other beloveds in this relationship between you and the Lord, can I ask you if you've ever been cheated on? Or if you've ever cheated on someone else? Perhaps not in your marriage, but in a relationship prior? When you understand that, you can understand then the jealousy, the anger, the heartache, the deep, deep wound that comes when one is unfaithful. When you understand that, then you understand to a minute degree how God feels when we substitute other things for him. Israel did it and we do it too. In this relationship, faithfulness is expected. And faithfulness is easy at first. Now go back to your wedding day. You remember the vows that you made. Perhaps not. But I think that you meant them when you said them. But over time, they are tested. You say you love your husband or your wife, but that will be tested over time. Can you be patient? Can you be kind? Can you be true? Can you be uh, not self-centered? Can you control your temper? Uh, well, time will tell. In teaching us about love, God hopes to bring us closer to him. In a Jewish wedding, as we said, there was a betrothal period. And the bride of Christ, that's us in the church, is separate from her bridegroom. Her responsibility, and his too, for that matter, was faithfulness. He made her holy, H-O-L-Y. 
And she is to be holy. W-H-O-L-L-Y is. The holiness leads to a sense of being holy his. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 then makes more sense to describe the bride this way. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of his darkness into his marvelous light. And as well, this also makes James chapter 4 much more clear. When he says... Almost harshly, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? You say, how can a loving God be a jealous God? Oh, I think I can understand that completely. If you've ever experienced jealousy, my guess is it was rooted at some point in love. The bride was made holy by her husband, and therefore she is to be holy his. And finally, the bride longingly, lovingly awaits his return. The Jewish wedding ritual earlier described of the groom coming back for his bride makes so much sense when we hear these words from John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to be with myself, that where I am, you may be also. The Bible ends with a wedding. Revelation chapter 19. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And I saw the holy city, this is Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned. For her husband. Come I will show you the bride. The wife of the lamb. And he carried me in, in the spirit. To a great high mountain. And showed me the holy city Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven. From God. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel. At the second coming of Christ. The church will be united. With the bridegroom once and for all. Happily ever after. And the wedding ceremony will at last be realized. Now, pause to say, I, you know, some people want to argue and bicker about whether this is literal. I think that misses the point. What I want you to understand is that you, as a Christian of the body of Christ, are of Christ's bride. 
And as a bride eagerly awaits her husband, so we too eagerly await his return. We are charged in the book of Revelation, the saints were charged to be faithful unto death, to receive the crown of life. And until that moment, until he returns or until we pass from this world, we the redeemed and those of the bride say in all loving, in all sincerity, come Lord Jesus. And all who agree say, amen. Next week, we're going to talk about the patient. And I hope you'll be with me as we return to talk about the story of Job and how God worked in it. I appreciate you being here tonight, and as we end every lesson, I want to invite you to be a part of the bride of Christ. If you have not yet confessed faith in Christ and been immersed in baptism for the remission of your sins, I want to invite you. I'll be glad to study with you or do it tonight if you're ready. Uh, I'll meet you down front if you'd like to do that, or if you have any other need of prayer or encouragement, uh, please come. I'll meet you down front as together we stand and sing.